welcome to Catholic Confessions. Hi, I'm Edith, and in this podcast, we are going to discuss one of the most hot-button issues in Singapore right now, and that is the case of Section 377A of the Penal Code. Okay, before I get into what this issue is about, I would like to introduce my guest speaker, Dominic Chan. He's a Catholic and a practicing lawyer who also has a Master's in Theology from the Augustine Institute. Now back to the case of 377A. Section 377A of the Penal Code is a law that criminalizes sex between men. This issue first exploded out of the blue on social media in September last year, 2018, where there were certain parties that started to call for a repeal of this law. So there was this furore that just erupted. And very soon we saw that people were divided into two camps, those who supported the repeal and those who didn't. So now it has died down quite a bit on social media. But I saw in a video at a recent Pink Dot event that this war cry for the repeal rages on. Okay, so from September last year until now, I, I have not taken any kind of action with regard to this repeal because I felt that I didn't know a lot. I didn't really understand much about the law, about why it was there and what purpose it served. So there was largely inaction on my part. So how about you, Dominic? Hi, Edith. Thanks for having me here. This was a very difficult issue for me as well when it first came out. And I recall that when this issue came out, there was a video that was spreading around asking people to retain 377A because it has got serious consequences on society. I forwarded that video to some of my Catholic friends and I remembered that you know, the response was very, very divided, very explosive. And some of my friends actually left the chat group as a result of that video simply being forwarded. One of them left and basically said something to the effect to me that you used to be a certain way, I remember you a certain way in school, and now you, know, you are somewhat unloving in forwarding this video. And I also recall many of my friends who uh, had heated arguments with their family members and friends about this issue. So I myself was, was undecided at a point of time, and I needed to study that issue very seriously for myself. You know, even within my own family, we couldn't come to a straightforward conclusion on this. And I think what is necessary is that we need to employ what is known as prudential judgment. We need to look at this from many, many different perspectives, moral law, civil law, human rights, the common good, various other factors before we can come to a conclusion because it's not that straightforward. There are many arguments for and against and we have read them all in the media and we can't possibly go through every single one the for and against. We can only focus on certain key arguments. And for the purposes of today's conversation, I think we might want to focus on the concept of common good, which is what the bishop had mentioned in his letter. Yes, so it takes some effort to actually consider all these other aspects in order to make what we call a prudential judgment. And it does seem to me that quite a lot of people are making their decisions and their standpoints based on emotions alone and what they could see as justice and what is fair. So in reference to the letter, okay, it would be helpful now if you have the letter with you, if you're listening in. It was uh, written by Archbishop William Goh. It was a pastoral letter that he issued on 18th of September 2018 in response to this repeal issue. 
And if you go to the section under civil law, he said that the laws enacted must be for the common good on grounds of truth and justice, and it shouldn't be just based on current or popular opinion. So Dominic, what is the common good? Very, very good question, Edith. Now, let's just pause for a while and, and go into the definition of the common good, because until we have a similar definition, we are not able to answer the question of how the removal of 377A will affect or will likely affect the common good. What is the common good? The bishop has actually given a definition in his letter, and it is this. The common good is the sum total of social conditions that promote the flourishing of individuals, family, and society. And if you were to narrow down on one concept of common good, and that would be heterosexual marriages between men and women, as defined by the church. And from there, families which are birthed from the heterosexual marriage, and from many of these families, that is society. So you move from a concentric circle inwards to outwards. So you have marriages, families, and society, and that's the bedrock of uh, the future of humanity moving forward. Now, a Catholic can come to that definition. A non-Catholic can also come to that common definition without the aid of faith, using reason alone. Once we have that common definition, then we can answer this question. Would removing 377A affect that common conception of the common good? Could you give us some examples or ideas from a legal standpoint about how you would address this question? Before we dive into this issue of the common good, I want to make a distinction, reiterate it, that there is a distinction between homosexual acts and a homosexual person. It is only the former that violates the teaching of scripture, and the church clearly teaches that a homosexual person or persons with SSA must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. Now, I've just read from the Catechism. A Catholic may ask then, haven't you heard, Dom, that the Vatican has said that you should remove 377A? You know, something along those lines. And that's a question which I've considered very, very uh, in-depth as well. Because in the year 2008, the Vatican had come forth to talk about this issue briefly. And it was in response to a French document where in the UN, United Nations, they wanted to introduce this resolution for uh, the removal of criminal penalties against homosexual persons, but also introduced the concept of non-discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, the Vatican basically said that we cannot agree to that document wholesale, but what we can agree with is that moving forward, we should encourage and urge all states to remove criminal penalties against homosexual persons. So their focus was on the removal of criminal penalties in the states which still persecute them. But what the Vatican couldn't agree with was non-discrimination based on the nebulous concept of sexual orientation and gender identity because they saw that as inextricably linked to the attempt to introduce same-sex marriages as well as adoption by same-sex couples, surrogacy, and also how it affects the freedom of religion and speech. So in objecting to the wholesale ad adoption of that document, they were actually concerned about the common good 
very similar to where Singapore was going in terms of where the bishop was talking about. Right? You don't just accept it wholesale. How does this dovetail with the Singapore government's position? As a starting point, I myself, I'm not interested in the enforcement of criminal penalties against homosexual persons engaging in such acts. In fact, I personally would, have, would object if I know of anyone who is prosecuted for private consensual homosexual sex between adults. And so the government's position then, in a sense, I completely align myself with them. What they have done is to say that the government will not actively investigate and the Attorney General also came forth separately to say that we will not prosecute even if there's an investigation. So the twin arms, in a sense, of the enforcement of the criminal law has come forth to say this law we will leave unenforced, i.e. the criminal penalties will not be enforced in a private consensual context between adults. Now, that is how it dovetails with the Vatican's position, which was concerned about not having criminal penalties. And that also dovetails with the bishop's position. Right? So I just wanted to say this because as a Catholic and uh, reading the bishop's letter, we are not here to uh, maintain 377A in a purely legalistic sense of seeing them go to jail. Okay? We are not concerned with an enforcement in that sense. We are rather concerned about if you remove this law, how does it affect the common good? So moving on, and thanks for that. So we were on the issue of the common good and about how the removal of 377A and uh, how, whether it really does affect the common good. So could you elaborate on that, Dominic? Yes, very, very good question. And in fact, I, I had spent about two months pondering this issue last September and October with a lot of examination of the legal authorities as well. Now, if you look at the bishop's letter, very close to the end of his letter, he says this, that he would not, or rather he is of the view that 377A should not be repealed under the present circumstances. This is because by accepting homosexual acts as a social norm, the dreadful consequences of the stability of our, our families, well-being of our children and the risk to the common good would be long-term and irreversible. Now, he said this, and, you know, as a matter of prudential judgment, we have to ask ourselves what is the causal link between repeal and the effect on the common good. Because if the causal link is not there, then we are guilty of fear-mongering. For example, if we remove 377A tomorrow, and marriage doesn't change, families don't change, right? Sex education in school don't change. What's the real issue? If the social norm or the norm of heterosexual marriages, families, and society still remains... What is the real issue? And so we need to examine that causal link. And we can't do that unless we look at other countries' examples. If you look at other countries' examples, you would see, for example, in Canada, America, uh, UK, uh, India, right? You, you would see that there is a common trend. There are some key arguments which are run, which if you accept those arguments uncritically, when you remove a similar statute like 377A, it then leads to the slippery slope and the floodgates of everything else that changes. And one of the key arguments that's being run is that sexual orientation is immutable. What is immutable? I.e., you're born with it, it's genetic, it's unchangeable, it's innate. Now, that argument is something which is unscientific based on current 
scientific consensus. Okay? It is, or, or at least some scientists have come up to say it is unscientific. And even at the lowest common denominator, the science is conflicted on both camps. Um, in recent times, in 2015 or 2016, there were two LGB uh, scientists that came forth to say that that claim that sexual orientation is immutable is unscientific. And they have come forth to say this, but you know, in a sense, the, the damage has been done in, in America uh, when, when this happens. Now, that argument, if accepted uncritically in Singapore, assuming we remove 377A, and the basis for removing it is the acceptance of that same argument that's been run in Canada, in America, and in India. If you accept that uncritically, it lays the foundation for same-sex marriage, and it's very difficult to prevent it from happening. So that's the first key argument as we run in, in other countries. The other key argument, foundational argument, is this aggressive right of privacy or freedom of choice. For example, in India, as well as in America. That argument has taken root and taken a life of its own, which is this, any act that's done in private between two adults that's consensual is outside the scope of the state's regulation. So you have a freedom to have sex with whoever you want, freedom to choose, and the expansion of their right is not just the freedom to choose to have who to have sex with, but also the freedom to marry them. Okay, so that's how that argument has been run and expanded. Now, those two arguments, and of course there are many other, other, other arguments which has been run. If 377A is removed, the question for us is, would those two arguments take root in Singapore, either in Parliament or in the courts, if there's any court challenge? It all depends. It all depends on whether they are parliamentarians and judges, right, who when challenged by these things would be able to maintain the traditional definition of the common good as marriage between man and woman. Now, let's try to contextualize it for Singapore in five areas. Marriage, adoption, freedom of speech and religion, sex education in schools and media. These are the five areas I'm going to go into for the purposes of discerning the common good. If 377A goes, there will be a challenge on the traditional definition of marriage, either in parliament or in courts. That would definitely happen in Singapore. As it stands, there is no constitutional definition of marriage as between men and women, unlike what we have in Hong Kong as well as in Hungary. We don't have that positive definition. We just have silence. Although, of course, logic and anthropology and history would tell anyone that uses reason and reason alone that marriage must be between a man and a woman. It seems logical for us right now. But that wasn't the case in America. That wasn't the case in Canada. Because when that challenge came and there wasn't this positive definition of men and women uh, being the only ones to get married, if that definition wasn't there, the redefinition took place. And so Singapore is vulnerable in that, in that aspect of marriage because we don't have that definition in the Constitution. And so if you, if you ask me, 377A, if you repeal it, will it lead to same-sex marriage? I won't say it is inevitable because it depends on whether there are men and women who will be in parliament and in the courts who will be able to use reason alone to maintain 
the traditional norm of heterosexual marriages. But can we depend on that? Or are we gambling? Because we are moving towards a direction whereby we have a new generation of liberal people and liberal people will be everywhere in Singapore. And you might then come to a state whereby, similar to in America and Canada and various other countries, men and women would then, when challenged, say that, well, actually the old definition is discriminatory. Let's redefine marriage. So that's the first area. Second area is adoption by children and surrogacy by same-sex couples. Same thing. When you have a right to marry someone of the same sex, what's to stop you from having children? The church's understanding is this. A child has a right to both a mother and a father, and to deprive them intentionally of either one is injustice to them. Allowing adoption by same-sex couples and surrogacy by same-sex couples is exactly doing that. Injustice to that child who will never know either mother or father for life, and they will think it's norm. Again, do we have any laws right now to say that same-sex couples, that they cannot adopt or have children by surrogacy? We have nothing. In fact, there's a recent court decision which came close to affirming that uh, a gay person can adopt a child that he conceived by surrogacy. That was extremely controversial. So we don't have that preventing it right now. And it's already happening. Are we fear-mongering or are we using prudential judgment to think about the consequences? Number three, freedom of speech, expression and religion. In America and in UK, there's already been cases about bakers and florists who refuse to provide flowers or cakes to those who are celebrating a same-sex union or marriage. The answer is a very difficult one. At the end of the day, it's about whether what you are supplying has that message that you disagree with. So, for example, you can't refuse to sell bread to someone with same-sex attraction. You can't because that bread itself has no expression. It doesn't have any uh, meaning in and of itself that supports same-sex couples and marriage. But if you are forced to sell a cake that has that message, then in UK at least, you can say no. Now, all of these laws are still up in the air. Is there right now a formula in Singapore as to what you can or cannot say or do if homosexual acts become the norm in Singapore? What pastors can preach, what non-believers can say in the press, are there any laws to say that you can continue to have such freedom of expression and religion? There's nothing. Number four, sex education in schools. As it stands, it will appear that we are still teaching children in school that sex education, or rather that sex should be between male and female, generally speaking, you know, that's what we have. But if you look at the Pink Dot declarations, one of them, they explicitly say we want accurate sex education in school. Now, we know what they mean by accurate. For them, accurate means sexual orientation immutability. Okay? It means normalization of the same-sex attraction um, and them marrying together. You know what it means. Do we have anything right now in the MOE syllabus curriculum about sex education that prevents that from happening? Do we have anything in the syllabus right now that says what the norm ought to be and that the norm is traditional heterosexual marriages and families? There's nothing. There's nothing that enshrines it there that prevents a challenge from eventually removing it. And again, we'll be depending entirely on men and women in the MOE in civil service, right? To use logic alone to reach that conclusion and prevent that challenge, would they be able to withstand that challenge without a positive law enacted to say what the norm ought to be? Answer is no. Last one, media. 
proliferation of the LGBT agenda and the normalization of that lifestyle. Do we have anything to stop that from happening? To say what the norm ought to be and what the norm is not? Again, we don't. So we are playing with fire here right now when we remove 377A because it's not just about the law in itself and whether it is inadequate or whether it is under-inclusive or whatever arguments you have for or against it. If you just look at common good alone, and again, this podcast is limited in terms of time. We can only focus on this. And I have many arguments for the rest, but focusing on this alone, when you apply prudential judgment, whether as a Catholic or a non-believer, if you believe that the common good is as I've defined it, which is traditional heterosexual marriages and families and society, if you believe in that, then you need to be aware. You need to know. You need to articulate and you need to reiterate wherever you are in social media, in your own realm, conversations with families, you need to reiterate that these things are vulnerable to change. They are vulnerable to redefinition. They are vulnerable to challenge. And 377A is that fence. It is that defender of the traditional norm. Perhaps an ineloquent defender, but a necessary defender. And if you remove this fence, and assuming that the traditional norm is what we call analogously as the city, we have no city walls to protect that city from crumbling. Are we fear-mongering? Or are we looking at the hard facts? Are we looking at the stories of other countries? Are we looking at what is lacking right now in the laws to protect the city, the analogous city? Prudential judgment, reason alone, even without the teaching of the Catholic Church, leads us to only one conclusion. And that conclusion happens, just so happens to be aligned with the bishop's conclusion. And let me just read out his conclusion. Indeed, I would not object to a repeal of 377A if it were merely aimed at removing all potential criminal penalties against homosexuals. And this is the crux. However, until and unless Parliament puts in place a formulation that more perfectly encapsulates the spirit of the law, guaranteeing the protection of the rights of the majority who favour the traditional family, and that no further demands be made to legalise same-sex unions, adoption of babies by same-sex couples, surrogacy, or to criminalise those who do not support the homosexual lifestyle, I am of the view that 377A should not be repealed under the present circumstances. I cannot agree more. That is my wholehearted endorsement of that statement. And that statement is not made illogically, it is not made out of bigotry, it is not made out of discrimination, it is made out of love, it is made out of the sense of truth and justice, it is made out of a sense of faithfulness to the common good. Okay, thank you for all that, Dom. So going back to the, one of the things that I said earlier in this podcast uh, regarding my own inaction with regard to um, this whole issue, and I just want to uh, refer to this sentence that the Archbishop made in his pastoral letter okay, that uh, under the civil law perspective section, where he ends off by saying that silence is often misinterpreted as consent. I was not very ready to, you know, speak out, even make any comment or even to like anything because I just wasn't sure. I just didn't possess enough knowledge. But what I saw was that definitely on social media, there was a lot of emotional appeal in supporting the repeal. Okay, but I didn't see a lot of noise from the other side of the fence. But And, and I'm, I'm sure that, and I was pretty sure that 
the church's stand wouldn't be, wouldn't be along the lines of um, supporting the repeal. But then again, I didn't have, I wasn't able to really make a lot of reason judgment with regard to that. I see where you're coming from. And I think that in today's time and age, in today's culture, supporting the retention of 377A is not a popular one. And not many people are willing to come forth, put their face behind it and say, yes, I support it. And so if you look at the bishop's letter, he did say that you know, silence is often misinterpreted as consent. And I think that is the problem for many of us Catholics, and even non-Catholics as well. We remain silent, and I think three things need to be done. And I want to just encourage everyone listening in to do these three things. Number one is knowledge. There is a need to find out more. You know, we can't just leave this to the experts because we need more people to know so that the conversations can take place everywhere. Number two, they must speak up. They must not be afraid. We must not be afraid to speak up and say that I support the retention of 377A for the reasons I've just articulated. It is not something that is done out of religious bigotry. It's not something that only a Catholic can do. Even an atheist can come to the same exact conclusions using reason alone. We need to speak up. We need to be more vocal about it. right? Otherwise, silence is, will be interpreted as consent. And by the time we, we, before we realize it, 377A might be removed and we would have none of the constitutional or statutory protections for the five areas of the common good I had mentioned. By that time, it's too late for us to act. Which brings me to my third point, which is we need to act. Those constitutional and statutory protections are not there right now. Do we wait until 377A is down before we build up the city walls or do we do it right now by way of advocacy, by way of education, by way of writing in. We need to start right now, today. We cannot wait until the fence is down and realize there are no walls to protect the city. So I just want to end off here by saying that uh, it took me quite some time okay, to, um, to read through the pastoral letter, to go through the um, key aspects of uh, Dom's research and to really reflect on it before I am... I can say right now that I'm quite convinced that I can make a reasoned uh, a decision based on a prudential judgment in that sense. So like Dom was saying, we just want to encourage all listeners really to, to make the effort, not to just uh, wholeheartedly believe in everything that you come across on social media, but to always consider the means, the ends and the circumstances of any situation. So we thank you for listening and God bless. For more confessions, do check out our website and Facebook page.